Contracts are a central part of life when it comes to running a care organisation. Whether we're talking a simple agreement for self-funding clients or a local authority contract that is much, much more complex, it's vital to understand the implications and obligations that they contain. To help me develop my understanding around how to tackle contracts, I've organised to have a conversation with Paul Ridout and Jennifer Durbin from Ridout Solicitors. My name's Simon Parker, and this is the Care Leaders Network podcast. Social care contracts, the myths and the realities. So, Paul and Jen, why do we need to talk about care provision contracts for the social care sector? Simon, the whole of the revenue stream that supports the business in the social care sector is all derived from contracts, whether those contracts be with a public body like an NHS commissioner or um, with a local authority or in the private in the private paying section, privately negotiated and written contracts, which are usually in standard form. But the whole core of the business and financial success of the business is determined by the contract and the terms of the contract. So it's absolutely vital. Without the contract, we don't have a business. And I guess that's probably fairly important. Obviously, slightly joking, of course, it's the probably a, a, a business 101 fundamental. So talk me through the dynamics of uh, the, the, the social care contract and then what are the what are its implications around kind of market pressures uh, and what affects contracting decisions? The contract is essentially very simple, although many people produce contracts that are over lengthy and over complex. Essentially, in essence, This contract is a service contract. It's a contract for the provision of accommodation and services with one or two sort of background boilerplate clauses and the the all-important clauses about payment, how payment can be varied, if at all, and how it can be terminated. And the vital question which needs to be there, which often isn't, is how do you address changes? One of the biggest pressures on our social care contract is that unlike most of the contracts that most of us sign in our everyday lives, a social care contract is expected to last not just for months, but for years and sometimes for whole lifetimes. So it is very, very important that those who negotiate the contract, particularly on the provider side, have provisions which are set in there to to be flexible to change. People sometimes get better in social care. That's rarely the case, but they very often get worse. Their needs increase, their dependency goes up. Therefore, for example, somebody might need to move to have more than one member of staff with them all the time. First of all, one member of staff all the time. Then in some cases, in some types of social care settings, maybe two or three people. Of course, that comes at a cost. So who is going to bear that annual or more frequent increases that come in an obligation that isn't freely negotiated but is imposed and you need to have a provision to how that's to be shared or if it's all to be borne by the purchaser because in a sense if the provider is having to pick up increased wages to meet the needs and the requirements of a particular service user as we rather pompously call them then those 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 needs need to be paid for. The provider is not there to subsidise. 
So those are the, those are the, the two things. And within the public sector commissioning, of course, the public sector commissioner can very often be a very powerful customer. Um, and they are able to dictate, and frequently they do seek to impose their own form of contract. That's a pressure, maybe we'll talk about that later. But do not be misled into thinking that the contract is of any protection to the to the provider. The contracts that public authorities put forward are all down to manage out any conceivable risk for them. And providers providers may have to accept it, but they should take commercial and legal advice about what it means because it may be really important further down the line. It's funny at the beginning of uh, your the answer to your question, you highlighted the fact that people often overcomplicate contracts. Uh, I think anyone that's been involved in business, particularly social care business, will have uh, some exposure to, to contracts that are lengthy, wordy, uh, overly complicated. So that that particular point made me made me chuckle because it's uh, it's it's definitely a truism. Um, it's interesting what you say about the, the, the kind of the dynamics of the uh, of the contracts, the ways that they work in different scenarios. Um, I, I, I'll definitely ask you about the the private, uh, the difference between the private and the and the public sector. Uh, but fundamentally, having that that contract in place for what is, as you said, uh, uh, particularly quite a long time, it obviously comes with its challenges and things. And I guess. Is it a set of circumstances where you will set up a contract almost knowing that the dynamics of the set of circumstances will will change? So you you, you give it the kind of the best um, best informed. Uh, you, you you add in the, the the terms and things of the best understanding of the situation as it stands. Um, but that ultimately there will be contract changes. There's going to be ad- amendments. There's going to be addendums. All of that type of stuff as the the dynamics of the market shifts. Is that kind of typically the way that it works? Absolutely. The people get older, they get more dependent, their needs change, and the services which are required to be supplied change with them, usually to become more intense. And of course, the regulator who sits above all this will expect the provider to meet those needs, whether or not they've got an adequate revenue stream to support them. It's never going to be an answer to a regulator to say I'm not being paid enough money to do the right thing. So it's really, it's really important. And of course, we've had a we've had a happy period when inflation has been quite low. But with inflation going as it is at the moment, it would be a road to ruin not to have regular flexible uplifts, which which is easier when it's a privately paid contract than a public contract. And am I right in saying that it's easier to if if you set out almost the DNA of the of the contract right in the first place, it's easier to be able to create make those amendments as the scenario, whether that be the economic climate or the uh, or, or the needs and dependencies of the of the individual. If the contract set up right in the first place, it's easier to be able to make those amendments uh, to be able to keep it up to up to standard and upholding the uh, the, the the important clauses that need to be in place. That's right. And um, one of the critical parts is to create an opening benchmark for the needs as assessed and the level of dependency so that when the time comes that times change, you can point to a starting point and say, look, there we are. This has changed. That's changed. 
that costs more money, then we can come back. If none of that is present, then you're vulnerable to someone saying, well, we thought you were going to pick up the changes, whatever they were. And of course, with with um, you've got third party, usually statutory interference, that should be provided for and often isn't. And, you, and you've got the natural increasing cost of supplying a service. It's we we did at one stage a few years ago have some reverse inflation, but that's very very rare. So costs are going to go up, and everybody needs to recognise that. Although sadly they don't, and local authorities squeeze and squeeze. NHS bodies are better; they understand it, but but local authorities particularly like to say, "Well, we're not going to give you an increase this year." How does that work? So you want to look at the contract. Most contracts will have a provision for dispute resolution, which can be used to address the question of price. But you were saying what one of the differences is that a privately funded contract is a private contract between provider and user or user's family. It can have fairly brutal but straightforward provisions for increases in price or service. If those are not acceptable, then the contract comes to an end and the service user leaves. With a public sector body, it hasn't got the same degree of flexibility to meet increases in prices because it sets an annual budget. And they somewhat um, craftily drag out negotiations during the back end of the year and the early months of January and February. And then say, well, we've set our budget. We haven't got any more money. But one should never listen to that, but you should look for the provisions. And a well-drafted contract will have provisions to make that work. Most contracts will have dispute resolution clauses, and those can be used. Local authorities, particularly local authorities, um, not so much NHS trusts, really don't think that the contracting process is anything more than people gratefully accepting what they tend to hand out. But that's not the case. And one thing that is at the bottom of this is that one of the most difficult things you can ever do is try to remove somebody from a care home against their will. You could have all the you could have all the legal levers in the world, but you can't just dump them on the side of the street and hope something will sort out that so that for the enforcement has to be considered at the beginning of the contract period. And if the local authority feel they can't meet the new prices and want to go elsewhere, they should be able to get out as well, as should the NHS. As the Competition and Markets Authority will say, so should the private payer. That's the thing. The remedy for people who can't agree is to contract elsewhere. Does that help with your answer? Mm. No, absolutely. It definitely, definitely does. And one of the things that you touched upon there is some of the differences between the private sector and the public sector commissioning. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit, uh, just to kind of create, I guess, the kind of polarity and contrast between those two worlds? Well, the in the so the simple way to put it is that the private sector contracting is essentially controlled by the provider. They provide the terms of the contract. They manage the contract. They deal with their requirements to adjust fees and to increase services, to collect extras, those sorts of things. Within a public sector contract, 
the control is taken very much into the hands of the public sector body who produce a standard form contract, which very often is not particularly well suited, is always too long, contains many, many provisions which are almost irrelevant, like corrupt gifts and data protection. I mean, data protection is not irrelevant, but it can be summed up by a clause that says comply with the law. It doesn't need to go on for 15 pages, although we do, we do see that. And so but when dealing with a public authority, somebody has to decide how they're going to manage it and how they're going to take the risk that they're giving up the, the degree of control that they would have with private sector paying customers. And I guess um, th- this is where, I mean, I've heard of fee increases of between 0% up to, I think, just about into, into double figures uh, across the across the country. Um, but of course, this that, that doesn't keep up with, with inflation and the, uh, and the cost of running care organisations. Um, it means that, broadly speaking, that margins are being eroded if the private sector aren't able to increase their fees, which then gets you into a whole conversation about how the private sector is propping up the public sector, which I guess that's not a conversation for, for today, but it's the, the the fundamental underpinnings of this, of course, is the is the contracts and how they're individ, individually managed and the difference between the private sector and the and the public sector commissioning. Yeah, that that is the, the, the big difference, the degree of control and the degree of perhaps inflexibility through a, a public sector commissioner whose who's contract managers with the greatest respect for them, tend not to be the most knowledgeable or the most flexible of, of people in approaching this sort of this sort of problem. And it's interesting, isn't it? You hear of all sorts of different public sector organisations, some of whom get it, some of whom don't. I guess some are hamstrung, some of them are in t- maybe intentionally being difficult. Um, but broadly speaking, the uh, it, it's there. A lot of the time it's their way or the highway type type scenario. There may be a certain amount of negotiation to be to be had. Uh, my understanding is that where you've got um, people moving into care services of a particularly high acuity, sometimes there's more of an opportunity to build a package around that individual and that the commissioning can be more, let's say, kind of commercially viable. Uh, but a lot of the time it's a case of this is what we pay and this is how it works. Um that, that that's certainly my impression from speaking to a lot of people that have uh, care services that have plenty of exposure. I'd be interested to hear your your view on that. I think you've got it absolutely right. I mean, there is an assumption once you move into specialised care services, mental health or learning disability or very high acuity, then individual packages with a degree of flexibility have to be negotiated. We won't use any of the sort of casual expressions that litter the industry, but the selection of older people who need to go into care in order to survive with a degree of comfort are lumped together. And there is little attempt to differentiate between their individual needs, despite a regulator talking constantly about personalization of care and, and dealing with the individual not not with a, a, a standard specimen. It doesn't flow through into public sector contracting or indeed into pub, private sector contracting because in private sector contracting, the, the parties have the ability as they do in any other private sector arrangement 
to talk to each other, to negotiate with each other in an expectation that there will be a solution? Or is it that if there isn't a solution, then the user, the subject of the services will be moved elsewhere? That doesn't necessarily follow in the public sector. Sure. Yeah, no, thank you for thank you for just covering that. Oh, one off. We we touched upon this earlier a little bit around kind of changing the terms of contracts during the during the process. Uh, we talked about the fact that, of course, the if you get the foundation or the DNA of the contract right, that should be more straightforward. I'm sure it's never completely straightforward. But talk me through the process, what's involved. Uh, maybe I guess if you've got any examples of how that how that works, I think that'd be really, really helpful. Well, the examples are many and various, but I mean, it's like, I mean, the starting point is that no one party to a contract can change the terms unilaterally without the consent of all the other parties, unless there is a provision that enables that to take place. Now, there are other ways around that. Most contracts, if you find it, will have a dispute, mediation, arbitration provision, although it's they are unfortunately really used, they should be used more. People believe that they can adopt the method they would apply with private contracts and expect to get a reasonable response from a public sector body. They never do. So you've got that process. You need to look. You need to make sure you've got the timescales in mind, which may be addressed in the document. And you set out a formal basis of dispute resolution. You come to an end. And if the end of that, there is an arbitration after a mediation usually comes first. The difficulty with mediation is that both parties have to wish, have to be of a mind that they want to resolve the problem in a sensible way. If, if one of the parties just says, as you put it, it's my way or no way, then you're not going to get very far with the mediation. But an arbitration is different because at the end, the arbitrator decides and everybody has to accept that and move on. So that's that's the way it goes. Um, there are other devices that we use if the contract is lacking in provisions for this. There is a provision that allows you to imply into the contract terms which are absolutely necessary to make it work. And in ordinary short-term contracts, you know, hiring a car or renting a flat or buying a pair of shoes, the timescales are quite short. But the timescales in social care are such that I think it's absolutely obvious that there must be a provision that enables the parties to sort out a, a difficulty rather than one of them grinding their way to eventual bankruptcy. As I was going to say, Jenna's seen some of that and she might like to comment from her experience on how difficult it can be to, to deal with an intransigent partner negotiator in a local authority. Yeah. yeah, so I was actually on a case once where it was uh, not so much for care provision, but it was with um, uh, a scheme that the provider was on where <clears throat> they sort of were meant to be allocated or chosen as an option for to be commissioned to. And they basically were, you know, that because they got onto this scheme, they were entitled to receive um, or at least be considered to receive the service users, but the lead authority wasn't sort of allowing them to like open the home because they didn't meet the certain specifications. So it sort of is the importance between not only 
you have like between the commissioners that directly give you the service users, but you also have like the local authority aspect, um, which might be different than the commissioners or the same or in a group of local authorities. So you have to really consider all of the different contracts that you have with them and sort of how you have to negotiate that. And then more recently, um, we were doing some drafting for another client on um, changing their contracts um, for their service users and to implement sort of a third party agreement with third party contributions to make sure that, let's say, the local authority didn't want to pay the uplift in prices for delivering the care that the provider had a means to sort of recover those costs at the end from the third party who has agreed to pay for those care needs, whether, you know, if the commissioning didn't sort of um, authorize them to get that level of funding. Do you, do you mean by way of some form of top up uh, effectively yeah, paid, top maybe up. like a family yeah. member or something along those lines? Yeah, top ups. So, yeah, you know, you can you can have not only it's not just the contract between the service user and the provider, it's the contract between the service user and the commissioning authority and then the commissioning authority and the care home and then the care home and potentially the third party who's providing the top up. So you could be stuck in a series of contracts. You sort of want to make sure that these all align and that, you know, us representing the providers, that they sort of gives them the means to be compensated correctly while also being able to deliver high quality care to the service users. You know, it's really interesting that you brought that up because I've heard of, um, different local authorities who have basically said yeah we'll we'll give you the 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 10 percent increase or fill in the blank whatever the number is um that you're not allowed to charge a top-up of any form uh i don't know whether that's something that either of you have, have heard about um but that certainly happened at least a few times with members of the of the care leaders network recently which i don't i don't understand the argument there it doesn't I mean, it's probably so likely to land land with me. Maybe I'm maybe I'm biased, but that seems um, I don't understand how they can enforce that type of a type of a policy. Um, yeah, I interesting to hear whether you could shed any any light on that particular point, or whether it's anything that you've heard of yourselves. There's no problem with being biased in favour of your membership, um, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I think such provisions are unlawful because the law provides that the first thing is that nobody but the provider, um, nobody can pay any money towards the provision of the base service other than the commissioner, whether that be a private person or a public sector commissioner. So when you, again, that's why you need a very clear base of provision of, of the basic service that's going to be provided. The, we don't really approve of the expression top-up because it's a bit vernacular. It's best known as a third-party or a first-party contribution, but that's a little bit pompous lawyer talk. But what it's paid for is paid for that degree of the service that is in excess of what a base public authority would expect to fund. So, for example, if you go to, I won't name names, but if you go to a very posh care home with very large rooms and fantastic views and a wide variety of diverse activities a la carte menus cinemas including visiting manicurists and those sorts of things then a public service body would not expect to fund the cost of that but the individual may very well say i want that and their family may say 
we think that mum or dad should have the benefit of such a service in the latter part of their lives. And the local authority says, fine, but you better pay for it then. That's the, that's the crude approach. And so the local authority contracts to pay for it with a matching indemnity from the family to make up the difference. But the individual through their family has the right to choose what's called preferred accommodation. And if that preferred accommodation is at a price which is higher than the local authority would pay, the local authority could say, only if you've got a credible financial covenant that's going to meet the difference. And I think that a lot of that's misunderstood. I was going to say, because that's part of the CARE Act as well, which is effectively a contract or at least a clear stipulation around how these contracts should be managed. The fact that people should should have choice. It almost the the idea that a uh, 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 I'll use the uh, the kind of the 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 uh, the, uh, the crude description of a, of a top up. But um, that's almost like that's it's almost kind of. Uh, implicit in that that if if somebody wants to make that choice then they should be free to free to be able to to do that it's a, it's almost a contradiction in terms of such yes yes i think so but there's no reason why the public authority should pay for that mm, uh, of course and um they're quite, they're quite tricky these things because you've got a sort of a tripartite arrangement that is always difficult you've got changing needs You've got expectations. You've got you've got expectations of what a care service should look like. I mean, it's often said, you know, you when you come and stay in a big city like London, you could go and stay in a travel lodge, which might be the equivalent of the basic care home service, although with a comfortable bed, they say. Um, or you might say um, to pick up where I've been this afternoon. No, 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 I'm not going to stay in Travelodge. I want to go and stay in the Lang. Well, the answer is, yeah, you can go and stay there, but you better, I mean, you could better have somebody pick up the difference because the local authority is only going to pick that up if they've, they're satisfied. And they can, they can and should do quite significant investigations, but they can't just say, you may not ask for any more. They can say you may not ask what 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 people are not allowed to do as a care provider is to say, I provide a basic service. You are not paying me enough. So for that basic service, I require somebody to make a contribution so that it becomes a co-payment arrangement. You see, I'm stepping around using the word top up, but I can see why people have 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 got there. But you can't do that if if person A has contracted to pay for the whole of a defined service. Again, very important it's defined. Then it is not lawful to ask person B to pay for the same service. That's why it must be clear. It must be clearly something that is extra and different. Many many um, um, what you might call posh or luxury care homes say all of their rooms and all of their services are above that. So you get the nature of in the public service, I would say, some would agree, and it's a little bit controversial, but the public service is really a safety net to make sure that vulnerable people who are not able to provide for themselves um, are, are, are given what is needed to give them the basic life support and care and comfort support. It's not there. The public service isn't there to reward 
people at the end of their lives with a the luxury they've not been accustomed to. If their family choose to do that, and the individual can't pay extra for the extra service, it has to come from someone else. <coughs> because the individual will have been means tested. And if their means are significant, um, those means will have resulted in them having to pay a 100% contribution to the local authority cap. I mean, this is wandering off topic, but one of the biggest misunderstandings around this, because of the way national assistance and national health were set up in the 1940s, there's a belief that the, the, the social care services are free at the point of delivery. They are not. They're means tested. And, and, and so clever people with a, with a knowledgeable background, no matter how rich they are, manipulate getting their care services for their loved ones paid for by NHS continuing care, where there's no means test. So one person can be getting exactly the same service funded through NHS continuing care with no contribution, and another person has to pay away all their savings until they're exhausted. That's slightly off point, but it's all to understand the basis of the local authority commitment and obligation. We come back to your very first question. That is why they're important. And then and they are not given nearly enough importance by most people involved, including the care providers. Care providers should really have dedicated contract management teams or access to contract managers who monitor and, and, and process the contracts as, as a specific task, trying to get a hard-pressed care home manager to manage this sort of complexity without any training or knowledge of contract law or contract processes is just unfair, and it often goes wrong. And once the individual has been admitted to the care home, it's very difficult to address these things and get them corrected. I was going to say, trying to do these things retrospectively, I can imagine, would be a, a real pain. So... Yeah. Um, talk to me about the importance of care specification. I mean, you wouldn't um, rent a flat without being very specific about your needs and what you expected to find in that flat, whether it was furnished or unfurnished and what facilities there might be, how many rooms there might be. And so it is with a care. There's no such thing as a uniform set of care needs. Everybody is individual. The law requires a detailed assessment before admission and then detailed plans drawn up called care plans to deliver those needs. And those care plans need to be reviewed as it goes along and as the assessments may change. So that's the care assessment should outline exactly what the need is and the care plan then identifies how those needs are going to be met. And when you look at the, in a perfect world, it doesn't always happen this way, Southern, but in a perfect world, you would see, you would be able to match the assessment against the care plan and see that's how they're going to do it. And then suddenly, if, I mean, and it may be short term, somebody might catch COVID. It's happened. And um, then, their needs will escalate dramatically until that period is over. 
And so that that needs to be addressed. But that's that's why, because then if you haven't got a detailed assessment, someone will say, well, your obligation is to take it on the chin, whatever happens. And if you've got somebody who's saying more more like the example, somebody who suffers from a well-documented mild confusion so that they're a little bit um, forgetful, and a little bit sort of unwilling to, to follow basic procedures, if they then turn into somebody whose behaviour is antisocial, sometimes violent, certainly intrusive on others and at risk to staff, that will change it. But if you haven't, if you have, if you set out in a basic care assessment exactly what's there in accordance with the law, then you've got the tool to build on. If you've just got we admit people with dementia, then that's a flexible background, isn't it? I mean, you know, dementia takes many forms in many ways. But then the local authority might say, well, you took him on, whatever happened. Yeah, and I guess like a lot of the people won't. A lot of people won't necessarily uh, see the connection between the care specification, the care plan, and then the underpinnings of the of the contractors uh, as well. But they all need to be working together symbiotically to to make sure that the the person is looked after correctly, and the the terms of that agreement, the arrangement, are are mapped out in a in a way which is consistent with ensuring that the the person being cared for, the provider and the uh and the commissioner uh if there's a commissioner in place or the family members and things are all yeah. quite literally on the same on the same page um to, to to make sure that things are managed managed correctly and um contracts that jen and i have been doing we attach the care assessment and the care plans to the contract so it's there and as everything happens as the care develops as it i mean sometimes it might get easier People might go in very, very dependent and the excellence of the care in the nursing home might mean that they, they become of much less acuity. Whatever happens, that should be recorded into updated assessments and care plans, which enables you to make a good case for why the price is going up or potentially going down. So that's the other side. If somebody goes into a care home needing two to one cover because they're so very, very difficult, and they even they come someone who doesn't need any direct one-to-one -one cover. Anybody would expect the price to go down. So people need to be ready for that. The trouble with the uniform price, and as you touched on with the same service being provided at one price for those who use their own money and another price for people who um, are looked after by the state, is that people forget to watch those changing dynamics because they say with some force in the background at the moment, What's the point? You only get the same money anyway. And that's a little defeatist. And it leads to the problem that we're seeing around at the moment, that fees are eroded by various factors, inflation, change in dependency, statutory intrusion on things like national minimum wage, and then it's more difficult to address that. Mm. One of the things that I, I'd like to, to finish us off with is talking about the termination of contracts. Now, of course, there are there are implications of um, for the for the person in the in the, in the care setting around the termination of uh, of contract. I don't think you would 
uh, very re very rarely would it be an ideal set of circumstances. Um, but what would be the reasons around the termination of a of of a contract that that, that you've witnessed? Um, and I guess talk me through kind of some maybe some of the implications of that from a from a contractual standpoint. Uh, first of all, and most basically, failing to pay the fees. Secondly, failing to address correctly reasonable requirements for those fees to increase, which might, if a refusal to address that, could lead to the provider saying, well, you'll leave. Or from the other side of the coin, as um, CMA would say, if the, if the user finds the increase unacceptable, then the user leaves. Increases in dependency, either on notice or very quickly, because sometimes, when you one must remember that a care setting is a community living environment. If somebody's behaviour, for whatever reason, maybe not their own fault, is such that they are no longer safe for themselves, others and the staff, people in a care setting, then they need to go somewhere where they can receive the appropriate support by appropriately qualified people. Those are those are the situation. Um, there's lots of talk in the press at the moment about you know, the wickedness of people being evicted from their care homes. I've written about that. In my experience, no care home provider ever wants to lose somebody unless there's a very good reason for it. Non-payment, unviable um, contracts who lack of increase and um, changes in dependency, maybe in an emergency. But people don't just go around saying, I'm fed up with you, get out of my care home. Yeah, can't you just can't see it happening in the in the real world. But you, what you can see is how media organisations can whip that into a into into a frenzy and make a, an incredibly damaging headline. Unfortunately, because it's just it's just not the case that people get kicked out of care homes for for no good reason. There are specific reasons why that's the the case. And, and in the vast majority of cases, Simon, they move. Hmm. Actually, forcing somebody out in the final analysis for that court a county court order mm. by a bailiff eviction is sort of unthinkable imagine it make make appalling television and would probably be viewed in that way but these things have to be resolved but they also have to have a legal backing because before you can do any of that you have to terminate the contract because that's that's the that's the action that terminates the person's right to be where they are absolutely well, Paul, Jen, uh, thank you so much for talking to me about the myths and realities of social care provision contracts. Uh, I really appreciate your time today and thank you so much for sharing your your insights, your experiences and what you've seen in the, in, in your practice at Redout. So I uh, really appreciate you taking the time today. Our pleasure. Thank you.